Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is Jan Bartlett with you this afternoon. The Versailles 4 demonstration coming up in Malaysia over this weekend. I'll be speaking with activist Praveen Nagaland. Neil Blake moves sidewards for Younger Environmental Director at the Port Phillip Eco Centre. The results of the Sri Lankan election with Dr Brian Sidmaratna. Dr Tim Anderson is back from Syria. But let's talk first to Mr Kevin Healy and see what sort of a week he's had. A week, Jane, listener, when first, a warning, this segment contains disgusting, filthy language, the, the sensitive and dear little children should tune out now. Week when must pick up this serious spelling error on, of all places, P1 of this morning's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. After all, we know the share market, stockbroking and all that. Although the broke bit means different things to different people, the stockbrokers really seem to go broke, unlike many of their customers, but shares and steel go together. After all, if nothing else, any profits the shareholders step up are stolen from the workers who created them. Share broking is stealing at its very base. So this morning, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review PP1, big headline, China fears hit shares and steel. Understandable connection, but what ignorance. They spelled steel, S-T-E-E-L. Ignorance sub-editor. That story, and don't our hearts bleed for the poor investors, was across every paper and news outlet. No leaks there, no exclusive, but the week that was did get this exclusive leak from Cabinet that a number of ministers were sitting there moving around uncomfortably, crossing and uncrossing their legs, fidgeting, and, and eventually had to excuse themselves. I'm busting for a leak, each of them said, which, as I say, was a leak, but then poor big supremo tiny a bit more for the boss's captain's big cabinet has more leaks than the MCG toilets at half time, including leaks upon leaks about leaks upon leaks. And if the week that was might be extremely crude, apologies for what's coming, here comes the disgusting, filthy language listener, while the others might enjoy a leak and some are even pissed off, poor Tiny's shitting himself. I'm, I mean, how would you feel picking up the news this morning and finding you're less popular than Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten ambition? It, it's suicide material. Admittedly and understandably, they're both in deep negative territory with none of the above recording its usual overwhelming preference. Really, it's the unpopularity poll, although Little Billy did explain the secret of his slightly less unpopular. It shows the invaluable benefit of doing absolutely nothing, he boasted. Which brings us back to another captain's pick, the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission and its hanging judge, Dick's son, No Hide and His Bias, who is still contemplating how to react to the little fact that he was totally incapable of reading a simple invitation. Couldn't, as we pointed out last week, comprehend that all proceeds go to the caring business class party might have been a small clue there was some connection with the caring business class party. Well, it's a difficult choice for poor old Dick's son. 
I must make a balanced, reasoned, legal judgment between principle, the question of gross stupidity, and practicality, the question of my obscenely gross and deeply appreciated remuneration for ensuring the destruction of the evil trade union movement, which has for too long threatened the prosperity of the great economic order, which I have served so assiduously with so many friends having pointed out great integrity. Given the choice between principle and my obscene remuneration, it's a judicial no-brainer. Another person of great integrity transfilled the refugees. See, corporations under Dixon's law are regarded as persons. Transfilled the refugees is facing the same moral dilemma. After health industry super fund Hester divested its shares over the person's role on the ruined Manus Island, the person explained its shares have risen 45% since it won the contract to fell the refugees. So clearly, given the choice, Transfield, like his honour explained, between morality and profit, it's also a no-brainer. That other giant mind, Minister for the Caring Business Class, Erica Betts on the bosses, whose brilliance we reflected last week when he declared balaclava-clad thugs keeping, de- keeping uh, sadly let go by email at midnight workers off the wharves, showed just how evil those workers were. Well, Eric got stuck into the unions and the out-of-control socialists again, pointing out the old Dixon furor was a dead issue because Dixon didn't attend the event anyway. Eric just may have missed the, the not inconsequential fact that, like Bronnie, the old Dixon, suddenly had his burst of moral integrity just as the proverbial was hitting the fan, covering him in it, maintaining our scatological theme. Or, just as possibly, Eric is just as slow as the old Dixon at putting two and two together. As another his honour ruled former good union official Kathy Laxon Principal had got about one and a half mil of low-paid workers' money mixed up with her own lifestyle, tiny and team true blue Aussie declared this showed just how evil the corrupt unions and the Socialist Party are, that they were responsible for her abuse of low-paid workers. Uh, uh, but tiny, you said she was heroic, a very credible whistleblower, a brave decent woman when she attacked her own union. What I am saying and what I said then is that this heroic, very credible whistleblower, brave, decent woman shows just how evil the corrupt unions and socialist party are. Just how evil the corrupt unions and socialist party are. Uh, So a caring business class party, a parachick, knocking a couple of million off your lot, obviously means the caring business class party is also evil and corrupt. That is a reprehensible inference. A reprehensible inference. This incident shows just how evil the corrupt unions and socialist party are. That their immorality, their evil, their corruption can spread so far that no one is safe from their evil corruption, their evil corruption. Just how important it is that my very, very, very close friend, 
Uh, no, I mean that neutral man of integrity who has served this country with such honour. His honour, Mr Justice Dixon, no hiding his bias, remains in his obscenely remunerated position to bring down the report we handed him. Uh, don't you mean the commission you gave him? Isn't that what I said? As these vindictive, vigilante, long-haired, commie, greedy, wooden worker and iron lots were exploiting the legal system to slow down the end of the world, the Minister for Pollution, Hunt the Greenies, bemoaned the fact that environmental laws were being used, wait for it, talk about abusing the system, used to protect the environment. That's not what they're there for. Hunt the Greenies was justifiably angry. These laws being abused by the long-haired greenies have to be rescinded if I am to achieve my role as Minister for Pollution. The government said the long-haired lot had all this money to run these vexatious vigilante cases, which must leave the world resource cartels green. Well, well, no, not green, obviously, but whatever. With envy that small environmental groups have so much wealth. New laws, as I read them, would mean that those proposing new pollution would have to live right next door to their pollution. Adani, the environment, for instance, will have to move its headquarters, Hunt the Greenies explained, from India to the Galilee Basin, and all the great lifting the world out of poverty coal mining fossil companies will have to conduct their board meetings deep inside their own mines. See, clearly, unless we live next door to a coal mine or the Great Barrier Reef, for instance, we have no right whatever to be concerned about possible threats to their environment, particularly since all approvals, and they are all approved, assure the Great Caring Corporation will ensure the environmental impact will be minimal. They all say that which reveals even more clearly just how irresponsible those long-haired commie greenies are, thinking environmental laws have something to do with protecting the environment. And, well, they tell us the leaks and destruction and health consequences and pollution will be minimal and the profits will be maximal. Oh, and finally, for our footy fan listener, so Jan, just chewed out for a second or two, following last week's new telly rights deal, those of us who either can't afford and or wouldn't pay Lord Rupert a whopping on principle anyway to watch pay TV, in the past two deals, we've, we've gone from five out of eight free-to-air games every round to three out of nine when this new deal comes in, while those prepared to pay Lord Rupert for the privilege can watch all nine. And Kerry Stacks of Wealth's free-to-air channel tells us this is a great win for footy fans. Being able to watch two less games can only be described as a great win if we resort to capitalist euphemistic speak. The one certainty is one of the three will condemn us to watching, or more likely not watching, tuning out, good old Carlton being thrashed in it, thrashed yet again. Oh, on that, while I'm bitching, as four of the top teams played each other Sunday, Kerry Stacks of Wealth showed Carlton versus Melbourne, the great fight for the wooden spoon, to an audience I would suspect of about ten. Still, we could have paid Lord Rupert and watched the good games. It's called competition. It's good for us. Good afternoon. And that's the ungrateful Mr Kevin Healy with his football segments. We haven't had a, a Paris one for quite a while, Kevin. And you can hear more of Mr Kevin Healy tomorrow morning on 3CR, 9 o'clock until 10, with his program City Limits. Versailles 4, a 36-hour 
overnight protest called for both throughout Malaysia and overseas from 2pm Saturday until Sunday night. I'm speaking with activist Praveen Nagaland. Praveen, what are the demands for this protest? We've got five demands. First and foremost being clean elections. Then we've got clean government defending the right to dissent, strengthening parliamentary democracy and also saving our economy in the Malaysian context. Now this is Versailles 4. What happened with Versailles 1, 2 and 3? Versailles 1 was uh, somewhat quieter than the others. So it was really the launch of this uh, coalition, if you like. That was what Versailles 1 was about. It was not as well publicised, if you like. Versailles 2 and 3 were really the cornerstone of protest rallies in Malaysia, is how I put it. Now, in terms of what those rallies have achieved and similar other rallies have achieved, there is a school of thought within Malaysia that these rallies haven't achieved all that much because they have not managed to change the government, the incumbent government. Now, I think that is incorrect because the aim of these rallies to actually topple a sitting government or change the government in any way. It was always aimed at changing the behavior and attitude of governments. To a large extent, Bursay has achieved a lot. Bursay has, for a start, emboldened the people to speak up and voice what they think their rights are. So they have, the people, the public, the voters, they have started to demand for what is rightfully there. And also perhaps to educate other people as to what's going on. That's right, absolutely. It serves to publicize or add the grievances and seek some sort of remedy to our problems in Malaysia. The last time I spoke to you, it was talking about corruption scandals. Has anything changed since then? You spoke about some two weeks ago? Two or three weeks, yeah. If I were to say it has changed, I'd say the situation has deteriorated further. That's how I'd put it. So nothing's changed for the better in the last two or three weeks. And the reason for that is there's this controversial 2.6 billion ringgits which was transferred into the Prime Minister's uh, personal account. The authorities have been working through their justification for what that's all about. So the latest we know, or we are made to know, is that it is a political donation that was received. Malaysians are confused on what's going on, as am I. I don't think the situation got any better since we last spoke. If at all, it's only deteriorated. We don't normally think of political donations going into the bank account of a, a politician, though, do you? No, it's very uncommon, I must say. Very uncommon. But there's a rather intriguing explanation that was offered for that as well. So the Prime Minister has explained that it was easier when the money was donated into his personal account for the management of those monies. I'm not entirely convinced myself, but that is the explanation offered. And the other issue is where did the money come from? That's also true. So initially it was alleged and there was evidence as well pointing it in the direction of diversion of some public funds, as we spoke the last time, then resulted in this $2.6 billion. But what has since transpired is there has been, for lack of better words, explanations that these monies were actually donated from wealthy Arab nations to Malaysia as political donations. There's nothing evidentiary to show this, but I think the people are not entirely convinced, is what I feel at least. Go forward to Saturday and Sunday. What do you believe will happen on those two days in the one night? If anybody's guess at this point, Jan, initially what happened was we were to look at the previous Bursia rallies. The authorities did crack down on dissent 
quite hard. Based on that experience, I believe they have learned the harder they crack down, the more support these civil society movements receive, be it sympathy or otherwise. They may not crack down in exactly the same way by... So just to jog your memory, the last time they had this in 2012, uh, the Bursa 3 rally, chemical laced water being sprayed onto parts of these rallies. There's also tear gases fired to clear rally participants. I believe the authorities have since learned from those experiences. Recent experiences suggest that the authorities are more likely to use subtle means to control these rallies. They might end up arresting the organizers of the rallies or those who are seen as key stakeholders within these movements, either prior to the rally or very soon after. Where will the main rally take place? So the main rally takes place in Kuala Lumpur, the heart of Peninsular Malaysia. There's also rallies in Kota Kinabalu and Kuching, which are the capitals of Sabah and Sarawak in the island of Borneo. There are also solidarity rallies taking place in over 40 global cities, Melbourne being one of them. What is the reason for the protest going for 36 hours? I do believe that they're trying to send a signal, they're trying to send a message that they're quite serious about it. It's not about just coming out, photo opportunity with people just walking past. It's not a picnic of sorts. So I do think they're trying to send a message to the authorities that enough's enough. Do take it seriously. So the rally participants, I understand, will be sleeping on the streets, in fact. Are you expecting, as you said before, some of the organisers won't be there because they'll already have been arrested? Highly likely. But I'm sure there's contingency plans for that. Well, they have a number of leaders that they contingency plan. They make sure that there are a number of them and there's no key dependencies as such. Because of immigration arrangements, although Peninsula Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak, which are on the island of Borneo, we are one country, immigration requirements require that you have travel documents when moving from Peninsula Malaysia to the island of Borneo, the states of Sabah and Sarawak. A number of these civil society movement leaders have been barred from entering into the states of Sabah and Sarawak. That's one way of controlling these rallies and who participates in these rallies. Do the authorities control social media? I don't believe they control social media, but they do heavily police social media. There's been talks recently about banning Facebook and what have you in Malaysia. If we go down that path, then yes, authorities will end up controlling social media. But social media is our only means of getting accurate information in a timely fashion. The thing about that is when it comes to a rally like this, based on my participation in this rally in the past, it is social media that connects rally participants on the go. This is a known thing that authorities do end up jamming signals. So you can't get your Wi-Fi signals and what have you in the midst of the rally. And that's another way that the the contain the situation. There's a lot at stake, isn't there, in Malaysia? There is a lot at stake. Parking politics aside, What's at stake is the livelihoods of Malaysians, the livelihood of everyday Malaysians. Their way of life is threatened, if you like. There's so much happening and so quick, and it's happening so quickly. People don't know how to react to this anymore. In the past, when there was corruption just left, right, and center around us, we accepted it as something that was okay, simply because it didn't affect our way of life all that much. But it has come to a stage where everything, all these negative elements are fused together 
that you can't just turn the other way and look away. That's where we are now. What's planned for Melbourne at the weekend? We're not planning a 36-hour rally. We wouldn't get a permit for that long to start with. But we are planning to gather at the Federation Square come Saturday, 29th of August, from 2 p.m. till about 4 p.m. Gather in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Malaysia and around the world, the others who are gathering in solidarity. Trying to encourage Malaysians and former Malaysians based in Melbourne and, and families in Malaysia by academic means or in emotional means. We'd also be demanding that the authorities take Malaysian voices seriously, irrespective of where they're based. There is a school of thought that as Malaysians who are based overseas now, that we have escaped very fortunately the situation at home. I think that's a very unfortunate view because we do feel a tad guilty having left our brothers and sisters at home. We're the fortunate ones in a way, but we'd like to think of those who are less fortunate than us in that sense very much to help them in whatever way we can. So the organization I'm part of, we are called Sayana Bangsa Malaysia in Australia. It's to, I am a child of Malaysian origin. We are a Malaysian diaspora interest group based here in Melbourne, and we advocate for good governance and racial unity in Malaysia. Although we are away from home, the one place that we always end up calling home is Malaysia. Now, that doesn't mean that we as migrants do not want to assimilate locally, but it's just a part within us that identifies extremely sad when a situation like this takes place in Malaysia. Being an activist here in Australia, does that penalise you to go back home to Malaysia? I do not know. To date, I haven't, I haven't experienced any untoward incidents as in when I returned to Malaysia. Going forward, I can't tell. But that doesn't mean I'd stop doing what I'm doing in any case. My family and loved ones do care for me very much. They do ask me to be careful. But I don't believe that fear should turn one away from doing that which is right. I think it becomes a moral obligation up against any injustice that's happening right in front of our eyes. Everyone has fear, but just leaving it to somebody else to do something about it is not the solution. And that was Praveen Nagaland, who's a, he's a child of the Malaysian origin. That's the translation of the Malaysian term. And if you'd like to participate in the pro-democracy rally on Saturday, Federation Square between 2 and 4pm. That's for democracy in Malaysia. The fascist group United Patriots Front are organising against a mosque in Bendigo this Saturday. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism will hold a counter-rally against them to show our opposition to Islamophobia and fascism. We are calling on all our supporters to meet us at 1pm at Bendigo Trades Hall, 40 View Street, Bendigo. We will then march to the Bendigo Town Hall as a group at half past 1pm. For more information, SMS 0422-726-843 or visit the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism Facebook site. Plenty to do this Saturday coming. Multi-award winning environmentalist Neil Blake has been director of the Port Phillip Eco Centre since its inception in 1999 or in his words, got out of the way. But he is remaining at the Eco Centre in his role as the Port Phillip Baykeeper. When I spoke with Neil 
last Friday, I took him back to the beginnings. The Port Fellow Echo Centre really began with the amalgamations of uh, the councils of Port Melbourne, South Melbourne and St Kilda. That was about 1995, I believe, when that officially occurred. There was a sense of great grief amongst the affected uh, council areas that they'd lost a lot of their representation. And and the number of councillors was virtually cut by a third, in a sense, because... uh, each previous council had about eight councillors, uh, so the total of 24 covering those three former municipalities went to uh, about seven or something like that, you know. So uh, there was a, a real uh, sense of loss from the, all of those council areas. In a sense, uh, the Echo Centre was probably uh, adopted as an idea by the, the new regime to show that things weren't all that bad, you know, there were actually some good things happening as well. And so the idea of having a a community hub not only showcase what the council's initiatives were, but also provide a resource and a base for community uh, groups within the area was uh, something that seemed like a good idea at the time. In 1998, a community working group was established to uh, determine what that might look like and where it could be located, etc. And in uh, November 1999, Port Phillip Echo Centre was uh, officially incorporated. I always remember, Neil, you talking about the the brick venereal house that you were moving into. (laughs) That's right, yeah. It uh, was not the best of houses, but uh, its location was superb, really. Um, So very well situated, being in St Kilda Botanical Gardens and also very close to public transport, not far from the beach. All the um, St Kilda Library, the Town Hall, there were a whole lot of um, pluses about it around the corner from Ackland Street. So in terms of it being a place where people would potentially visit, we were sort of right in the thick of things, so uh, it it was a good location. So you pulled the house to pieces, refitted it? Yeah, um, well, Earthcare had been using the um, house as a meeting space. It it stopped being a a residence in about 1992 and had just become a part-time sort of um, office space for the council's parks department, but also Earthcare St Kilda had been using it as a meeting space. They had the idea of uh, retrofitting the building into a, a model of sustainable design and practices. The new organisation, Echo Centre, inherited that concept and, and worked with Earthcare and others to bring it about. And in 2003, the uh, building was reached the miraculous heights of being a five-star <laughs> rated building, which was a pretty good going considering it was one-star one rated originally, a long way short of what would be a cutting-edge uh, building now. What did you do though to bring it up to that standard? Uh, well, a lot of the things were passive design methods. For example, opening up the north face of the building to, to let in winter light and closing off some of the west facing windows and things so that uh, it it had no insulation in it. It was a so that was a big factor. We put solar panels on and. Um, yeah, mainly though it was, as I say, uh, just passive design methods to reduce energy consumption. And then the garden? Uh, there was a productive garden that was created to um, demonstrate composting and you know, all those kind of things uh, and also uh, companion planting, uh, an organic garden at the back of the um, building. But on the in the front area, though, we had a, a no-water garden. So basically we put in local native plants that could cope with... Uh, 
whatever nature served up to them. More recently, we've turned that into a, a cultural garden, so it's the uh, Woman Jacker Garden, uh, showcasing uh, plants that are used by the um, Yalakut Willem people, the, the local uh, custodians of the area. And that's coming along really nicely. So, what's happened in that place over the last ten or so years? The last ten or so years, I suppose, there's been uh, quite a lot of changes. The building itself was useful in terms of being able to uh, talk about sustainable design, etc., to schools. So we've actually had more schools coming in through the place, but and generally engaging them in the topic of sustainability, waste minimisation, all of those kind of things. One of the other things, though, is that we've um, our number of affiliated groups has increased to about 22 groups now. So uh, it's interesting now that we've got groups like the Victorian Land Care Council, for example, that are affiliated with the Echo Centre and they have their meetings. So it's a, it's a good central location for uh, people from the bush from right around Victoria to come and meet, which is so it's great to be able to provide a, a hub for them to uh, catch up with each other and uh, work out their policy decisions, etc. Our education program has has grown extensively, so we now have uh, you know relationships with about fifty schools around the uh, southeastern Melbourne area. Beyond that, though, the Baykeeper program is also it's provided a hub for that, and uh, we're actually working right around Port Phillip Bay. So our regional uh, reach has increased enormously. What's the relationship with the local councils? We um, had a uh, collaboration with uh, Mornington Shire earlier this year where they were launching a couple of towns that were going plastic bag free, which coincided with us launching our Baykeeper catchment project too, so, uh, which is working to establish four chapters of Baykeepers around the bay so that uh, we can create community networks that um, are working uh, together along the same um, goals in different regions of the bay and so get a bit of more of a comprehensive program going. So Hobson's Bay Council, we've been doing some fee-for-service work with them on doing cigarette butt surveys and also working with other community groups over there on like the Friends of Williamstown Wetlands on uh, litter projects and research. Bayside Council has given us some support for our education program. Yeah, so uh, Frankston Council, uh, we particularly have collaborations with them again on litter, particularly plastics. So uh, they've used our Baykeepers film to help develop a couple of beach patrol groups in their area. So yeah, they're, they're practical sort of collaborations that have been really good. So there's a big emphasis on the local flora and fauna. Yeah, it's interesting. I was very pleased to note that uh, in our Facebook insights a couple of weeks ago that uh, the one uh, post that we'd put up which had shown or attracted most interest was one about winter birds visiting the area as opposed to plastic-free July. It was a bit sad, really, that it didn't attract that much interest, but uh, it was interesting, though, that it was the biodiversity uh, topic that really sort of struck a chord with people who have been at least looking at our Facebook page compared to the other sort of more lifestyle type things that uh, often seem to dominate the city scene. And what are the birds of the area? Neil, are they doing OK or they're, they're in trouble, some of the species? There's definitely been uh, big changes uh, happening for quite some time now, you know, and um, but there's some interesting stuff going on as well. So the tawny frogmouths seem to be doing okay, and they're they're one species that I sort of use as a bit of a benchmark for, in the sense that they are predatory species that can be affected by toxins in the environment. So like 
pesticides and things like that. The fact that they're still seeming to be doing okay in urban areas and is a good thing. There's a couple of other species that have moved into St Kilda, a few birds, on, um, but pied oyster catchers and sooty oyster catchers, I've seen them regularly out on St Kilda breakwater for the last 12 months or so. I believe the pied oyster catchers have actually bred out on the breakwater which is fantastic, and we're hoping to improve the, the habitat out on the, on the wall itself so that um, to uh, see if we can get the sort of oyster catches to breed out there as well, which would be just a, a great thing because they, they had rarely been seen in, in St Kilda previously. And that depends on the health of the bay? Uh, more so the fact that they can get some uh, quiet time out there, you know, so the fact that they the wall is actually fenced off and so you don't have dogs and various other things like that going on out there. But the birds in general? The health of the bay, I suppose, is and the main issue there is, from my perspective, is, is toxins getting into the food chain and uh, well, plastics are part of the issue there too, which is one of the reasons why we're focusing on microplastics in particular and the issue, obviously, of d- dumping dredge spoil on the manner in which it's disposed, if it's going to be disposed of in the bay. They're all sort of issues that um, will be continuing. So uh, I guess the the other key thing is, though, is having enough people interested in caring about the topic to exert political pressure so that politicians will uh, actually move around uh, taking actions will, that will actually uh, increase toxicity in the bay is is really my concern, and how, how do we actually engage people in getting them to want to be custodians of that environment rather than just seeing it as a commodity that they can either give or take, live without, who cares, whatever. <laughs> how do you and other groups do that? You know, one of the things I've been doing for a number of years is, is the shoreline shell survey, so uh, it's a good way of just engaging people um, and young families with what's on the beach and... Uh, talking to them about the animals that actually lived in those shells and you know, what their lifestyle uh, needs are and uh, what's threatening them and what, what isn't. And just getting people to sort of um, appreciate the richness, I suppose, that the, um, a good natural environment and a marine environment can provide for them. And, of course, there's been a lot of people come through the eco-centre who are, who are doing surveys and studies and research. Yeah, well, um, uh, well, Geo Fitzpatrick is, uh, is a fantastic young fellow who's uh, our youth wildlife ambassador and he's been um, doing some fantastic work with nest boxes and putting in, uh, and I suppose more to the point, communicating it with the community, which is really what that step that I was talking about before, about getting people to care because research doesn't actually get widely known by the community and presented to them in a way that this... Uh, accessible and positive then um, it's um, going to have limited effect. There has been other really good work though done on uh, the penguins for example with um, Annette Finger who's nearing completion of her PhD and been doing some work on uh, toxicity in penguins through using blood sampling over quite a number of years, about uh, five years now I think and it's best to talk about it but I guess one of the key things that she discovered in her um, studies uh, is that uh, there's been elevated mercury levels in the St Kilda penguins since the um, channel deepening project was uh, surprise surprise (laughs) so the implications of that though are yet to be determined and uh, I've always felt that uh, these kind of things play out over many decades rather than necessarily short term sort of doesn't appear to have been any 
obvious implications for the health of the penguins, but uh, that might happen at a later date. Often things, uh, cause of mortality can be a combination of factors, you know. So, for example, if there was a sudden uh, drop in the food supplies then and the birds had to rely on their fat cells, uh, which they do when they molt anyway, so that then there may be concerns that uh, some birds that just don't survive that period sort of um, successfully so yeah we just don't know we just have to um, keep an eye on things and uh, see how it goes in the future. How wide was the study? That involved three colonies Um, so one the St Kilda penguins from Port Phillip Bay and uh, birds from Phillip Island and also um, from Notch Island which is off Wilson's Promontory. There's quite geographically I'm not sure about the birds from Notch Island. The, the Phillip Island penguins do actually come into Port Phillip Bay in the, in the winter time. So in that sense, the bioaccumulation through the food chain, which is what this is about, toxic materials are released from dredge material dumped in the bay, ultimately being ingested by uh, small fish or through plankton into the small fish and eventually to penguins and dolphins, it has to be said. There would be concerns about the dolphins too, uh, bioaccumulating these more elevated levels of mercury. Why mercury? It's a sort of a legacy uh, of um, previous practices, you know, with gold mining and things like that, where there's a lot of uh, mercury used in separating gold released into streams. Uh, It's just one of the things that, um, from past practices, has been in relatively high concentrations in sediments in the in the river bank in, not not the bank so much as the riverbed and uh, when that material is dredged and eventually deposited in the bay in the spoil ground out there some of it is uh, managed to escape were other metals tested as well she also did arsenic um, but um, one of the complications with that is that there's relatively high levels of arsenic naturally occurring in Port Phillip Bay. So uh, it was mercury, though, that um, stood out as being the one that uh, had a noticeable increase. What will happen to that study? Anad is um, keen to uh, give presentations on it. Hopefully it will use, be used to inform future uh, projects and uh, and developments. That is a, always a need for that sort of stuff in terms of uh, considering possibilities like putting a new port in, Karaya Bay, for example, <laughs> which will inevitably involve uh, some dredging as well. You know, So uh, the more we learn about these things, the better. But again, nothing will happen about it unless people care. You know? <laughs> so uh, it's really important that we actually um, uh, get out there and engage with people and uh, get them to think, well, yeah, this, is, this is our community, this is how we live, and this is, these are the lifestyle things that we want to keep for our future generations. That's why I'm becoming a pirate. I'll come on to that pirate in a moment. (laughs) I asked you before about the the fauna and the flora. What about the flora? What is left of indigenous planting around the bay? That's a good question. Naturally, in the more urbanised areas, there's increased pressure because we've got roads and urban infrastructure relatively close to the foreshores around the bay, most of areas anyway, particularly along the east side of the bay, uh, we're seeing that uh, there's quite a bit of erosion occurring. So um, dune vegetation from Bay Morris down to Point Nepean is being seriously eroded um, and continuing to do so. Basically, we've got a, 
shrinking coastal zone, I suppose, that, that where the flora habitat that has existed is being incrementally eroded and, and lost over time. It's difficult because if there wasn't that urban infrastructure of roads and other sort of built environment, then uh, as sea levels rose and storm surges occurred, then over time different plant communities could migrate further inland, but they're not given that opportunity because they're, they're up against a brick wall. And that's, that's going to be an ongoing concern. The coastal squeeze is what uh, one uh, person has called it. And on the western side of the bay, different? The infrastructure isn't quite as extensive over there. You know, there are larger tracts of um, land over there that, that do have the ability to sort of migrate inland. But uh, uh, St Leonard's is one area that I've noticed there's some erosion of the cliff face over there. And uh, again, some areas, though, are not as, well, for want of a better word, pristine, I suppose. There's many highly modified landscapes in, in foreshores around the bay anyway. So in terms of habitats that previously existed, uh, there's really only remnants, uh, relatively minor remnants of them. Uh, salt marsh, for example, was... Um, is perhaps one of the uh, most, which is the plant community that inhabits intertidal areas and the, and the immediate coastal zone, was perhaps one of the most diminished plant communities in Victoria and it's largely because of uh, its having to be pushed up against infrastructure or reclaimed, you know, so that uh, it filled in for people, to, for grazing country or whatever. So there's been um, a lot of loss of that previously anyway. But now what we've got left is being threatened by sea level rise. What's been, or what is your relationship with the custodians of the land? The Wathorong people, uh, it's been very limited and it's really largely because I just need to go and find them. Somebody I noticed in the media recently who uh, looks like to be a good person to talk to, so he's got a beard a bit like mine. But uh, we um, have a very, very good relationship with the Boonarung Foundation. We're about to um, release a, uh, a publish a, uh, a poster of a natural country um, from the top of Port Phillip Bay, um, which discusses indigent the uh, Yalakut Willem people in particular, the clan that occupied that area and the history of them, and also talks about some of the revegetation work to to reclaim some of the lost landscapes that have been done more recently. Which brings us to pirates. And the re- yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the reason there is the emphasis on pirates is because I think you'd say you're stepping aside. Is that how you say it? Oh, getting out of the way. So when <laughs> yeah, I'm getting out of the way. Let the young people come in and uh, take over the, uh, the reins of the Echo Centre. We're very fortunate to have a very smart young woman, April Seymour, who's now the executive officer. She has been our education manager. She's a fantastic creative person, but also highly skilled in particularly in, in the communication field. And I think communications is, is really what everything's about. If we can't communicate, it doesn't matter what we know. <laughs> it's not going to be worth much. All right, let's talk about this pirate. Yeah, well, uh, Captain Trash is, um, is a character that I've created to, again, communicate with young kids in particular because... I sort of come to the conclusion a while back that uh, anybody over 30 who, who wasn't with the program is not worth investing energy and in trying to change their attitudes. Uh, and it's really about 
shaping the future through the younger generations and empowering them to uh, create the the world that they want to see. Having fun and uh, being a character, um, which some of them actually suspect I'm not a real pirate too, by the way. That's, That's you know, good. They say pirates don't have mobile phones, but, you know, look, get with the times, kids, you know. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we have a bit of fun, but Captain Trash in particular, though, gets out on the beaches with them and looks for noodles and other microplastics and things and just gets them being aware of the, of the five R's. So that's because uh, you know, there's a lot of R's in piracy. Uh, that's reduce, remove, recycle, refuse, and there's more. But and the other one is remove. Nobody's talked about remove. You know, you can actually clean up trash. You don't have to let it lie there and just pollute the environment. You don't have to take risks about it. But you know, like uh, unless we actually take some responsibility, and we're not going to get annoyed about the fact that. We're cleaning up other people's trash and nobody's doing anything about it. So something's got to change. And the key point being that in the next 10 years, there's going to be as much plastic produced globally as there ever has been before. And so uh, I have to say, you know, if we think there's a lot of plastic around at the moment, we ain't seen nothing yet. Looking back over those years at the centre where you've moved from one position to another, is there one particular thing that you believe you've achieved with other people of course for any of its shortcomings um, the echo center is there and it has been for 15 years now so we've withstood time and got it to the stage where it's been handed over to the younger generation and that's really i suppose the, the key thing that that i am proud of is that uh, it's it's a viable uh, organization that has been handed to the next generation to to take it into the future, and that's really what anybody can hope for. And I must mention before you go, Neil, your awards. <laughs> Why do you have to mention that, Jane? Well, just remind people that. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've been incredibly lucky. You know, um, I can't again. You know, like those awards wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't have had good people around to to be able to. Uh, inspire me and to assist me and support me you know so uh, I think they belong to the community to be honest. And what were those awards? Perhaps the more recent one was um, uh, I got the Coast Care Award for the Outstanding Individual Achievement for 2014. Um, there's been others uh, but yeah and they're, they're fantastic and I don't want to sort of downplay them in the sense that I don't think they're worth anything or that uh, but uh, yeah, the it's main, a joint effort. It's, that's right, and I'm just very conscious of the fact that there's a lot of people who have put in a lot of good hard yards and, and basically haven't been given any recognition whatsoever, and <laughs> in my opinion, they deserve it as much as I do. One particular award, though, was with the um, Baykeepers film, which um, was produced by Michael Lutman, was a fantastic young American filmmaker, uh, uh, won an award in the at the Oceanside Film Festival in uh, California last year as the best short documentary, and uh, that's actually going to be um, screened in the uh, Australian Environmental Film Festival, which is launching on September the third. It's really a fantastic bit of work. It's a twenty-six minute film. It's totally engaging, and Michael did a beautiful job on uh, producing that. We'll be screening it actually at the um, Piping Hot Chicken Shop in Ocean Grove on uh, 
Saturday the 29th of August. So that's great. That's a whole new sort of avenue of actually getting out and communicating with uh, the community. And that's uh, 7 o'clock on a Saturday night. Apparently everyone in Ocean Grove goes down to the piping hot chicken shop. And uh, Captain Trash is rumoured he's going to turn up there too, you know. So uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, event. So um, it'll be a great night. And that's the extremely modest Neil Blake talking about his work with the Port Phillip Eco Centre and the piping hot chicken shop. Not really a place that I'd recommend at any other time, but it's this Saturday night. On the foreshore, I think he said, near the foreshore Ocean Grove for the environmental film. And watch out for the film which will be showing at the Environmental Film Festival beginning on the 3rd of September. See if you can get a program for that. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. The Sri Lankan elections are over. Dr Brian Sinaratna human rights activist in Brisbane. Was the result as you expected? Not quite, in that where the Tamil party in the north is concerned, there was a breakaway party from Tamil National Alliance uh, led by Mr. Gajan Ponambalam. He and few of the younger, very active, articulate Tamils also contested. And they are a lot more progressive than the long-standing Tamil National Alliance. Uh, Mr. Pranamalam's breakaway party got not a single seat, and that was a huge disappointment. But anyway, that's what the people want, and uh, the people want, uh, they get what they want, which means that all the power to act on behalf of the Tamil people is in the hands of the Tamil National Alliance, who are very well known to have delivered nothing over the years that they have been in power. From that point of view, it is a disappointment. Otherwise, it is as expected. The only other plus feature of the election is that Mr. Rajapaksa has been delivered a death blow in his quest to take over power, basically, as the next prime minister. Because a power is going to be devolved from the president to the prime minister. The executive presidency is going to be shut down. If that happens, and Rajapaksa happened to be prime minister, well, then he's back to square one. Life begins all over again. Fortunately, that didn't happen, and his party did not win enough to form government. Now, when he was in power, he had half his family in there with him. Where are they? They are also floating around. The ones outside as ambassadors have been called back, I think. But uh, it's a very important point that you made because his brother, Basil Rajapaksa, who was called Mr. 10%, because all the government contracts and everything else, 10% went to, into his pocket. He fled the country, he's a U.S. citizen, to the U.S. And he was recalled and brought back to Sri Lanka and locked up straight away. Now, he has been released. 
the most important thing is that Gotabaya Rajapaksa, a war criminal, if ever there was one, no charges have been brought against him so far, despite the documented evidence of major war crimes. Mr. Sinsena is dragging his feet, uh, which is expected because he was part of this mob uh, before he became president. But uh, it is a matter of concern to me whether he will ever take these people to justice. Where does this election leave the army? Exactly where they are, which is in power in the north and the east. They are not going to be any demobilization. They are just going to remain uh, where they are making money uh, in running golf courses and restaurants and I don't know what not. 6,000 acres of land taken from the Tamil people illegally is in the hands of the army. Sirisena said that all land illegally taken over will be handed back to the Tamil people or to the people from whom it was taken. Well, in the first six months of the 6,000 acres, he was able to get released only about 400 acres out of 6,000. And he said that he does not have the power to recover the rest. That's nonsense. If the executive president and the minister of defense and the head of the armed forces doesn't have the power to tell the army, hand back these people's property, then uh, either he is kidding or just lying. And we have to focus also on human rights abuses in Sri Lanka. Yes. From that point of view, Intermittent Truth and Justice Project of Sri Lanka, South Africa and UK, July 2015, headed a still unfinished war. That's written by the leader of a major human rights organization in South Africa, Yasmin Suka. And she says that torture... Human rights abuse, white vans, etc. is continuing to this day and that nothing has changed. Now that was one of the promises, wasn't it, that the white, the white vans would disappear? Yes, white vans haven't disappeared, not only according to Suka, but the chief minister for the northern province in a lecture given in London about a month and a half ago said that he has got eight cases of documented white van abductions already on file, the details of which have been handed over to whoever. And I had a call from the eastern area, the particular area, that white van abductions are continuing there too. So nothing basically has changed. Do any of these cases of torture ever get to the courts? No. Uh, That is why it is important to uh, uh, take this to an international court. Because it's not going to happen in Sri Lanka. I mean, it's got to court that they've been dismissed all, you know, just put aside. No, no, no action has been taken and no action will be taken. And where are these international courts? Where the international people are concerned, the International uh, Court of Justice, in order to, for any of these cases to be taken there, the Sri Lanka has to be a signatory to the Rome statute and Sri Lanka is not. So if the International Court of Justice or any of the international courts take up the case of Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka can say, no, you can't, because we are not governed by the home statute. And the matter ends there. Now, in terms of international action, there is uh, the UN Human Rights Commissioner's uh, report to be tabled in Geneva in September. This is the former Prince Zaid Hussein. That was expected to be a blasting of Rajapaksa. Now, that's not going to happen because Rajapaksa is now out of power. America, that launched that complaint, all that America wanted was for Colombo to look more at 
New York, uh, uh, at Washington, than at Beijing. Now, with the change in politics, that has happened because the new citizen government is looking at, new, uh, at Washington. America is going to soft-pedal this report. I don't know what's going to happen in middle of September when the report is uh, brought down, but I would believe it's going to be a much watered-down report of no significance. But as I pointed out so many times, you see, the UN Human Rights High Commissioner can declare what he wants or what the Council wants. But Sri Lanka can tell them to jump in the lake. They're not interested. And that's what Sri Lanka had done and will continue to do. You see, unless there are sanctions, there's no point in passing these resolutions. And there are no sanctions. In my opinion, actually, the Tamils are today almost as bad, if not worse off, than they were under Rajapaksa. They are worse off because this budge, not known to the rest of the world as criminals and crooks, and therefore they expect the new uh, government to act in a more acceptable manner, and that they will not do. Soon after coming into power, Sinsena, and worse still, the Prime Minister, Rani Vikramasinghe said, the army will stay in Jaffna full stop, end of story. And they are back exactly where they were, and they are and will be. Now, my point is this. If the current government has nothing to hide, then it is time that Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and International Crisis Group were admitted into Sri Lanka today. That's not going to happen today, tomorrow, or in the foreseeable future. My question is, why not? Very negative uh, uh, attitude, I must say, but it is not pessimism, but realism. You see, you can be optimistic, but you must have a reason to be optimistic. There's nothing that I can see. I, can, I can't see anything constructive that has happened since the new government took over in January 8th. And I can't see that anything is going to change in the future because it's, you know, the horse keeps going in the same direction. Only the rider has changed. To have a, a guy at the top who's firm enough to tell the Buddhist monks and the other racists in Sri Lanka that the Tamils have been unfairly treated and that he is going to put this right. And we haven't anybody, including my cousin, uh, Chandika Bandana Kumatunga, who has the guts to tell the Buddhist monks to get back to their temples. And as long as they are running around with hate speeches, nothing is going to change. And thanks to Dr. Brian Simaratna, who I spoke to earlier this morning at his home in Brisbane. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station where the time is coming up to two minutes to five o'clock. We'll be hearing from Dr Tim Anderson very soon. The Melbourne street medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper-sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people, and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics, or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of agipop on 3CR's online community calendar. 
not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. When you read or see reports from Syria, where are they coming from? Are they first-hand or from one man sitting in an office in England, which we'll hear about later? Dr Tim Anderson was in Syria in July for a first-hand experience. This was his second visit in 18 months. I asked him about the degree of difficulty accessing Syria by air and, for that matter, leaving Australia for Syria. No, I didn't have any difficulties I think on the Australian side, the political police have worked out that the people supporting the Syrian government are not a threat in the way that the ones that, unsurprisingly, the ones that go and join terrorist groups against Syria are. On the Syrian side, it's true you can't really go there as a casual tourist these days because they'll check you out to see if you're a fanatic, you know, but um, because we were sponsored by the Institute of Sport, we didn't have any problems getting into the country. It's the reverse, really. How far into the country and around the country did you travel? Well, this was a difference because um, I went 18 months before with another group sponsored by the Higher Education Ministry at that time. I was surprised, even though I'd been following events pretty closely, that the security situation was significantly better, for us at least. That is to say, we could travel to the southern city of Sweden, the biggest city in the south, up north through Homs uh, to Homs and Tartus and Latakia without any real major security issues. Now... Uh, that's by road, you know. 18 months earlier, uh, we couldn't go to Soweda because there were attacks on the road. There were a number of places north of Damascus that were held by the Al-Qaeda-type groups, and the road was very dangerous. This time, there was just one spot that we had to do a detour around. There were still problems around Homs. We could travel to most of the major cities without major security concerns, and the attacks on Damascus were happening but weren't as frequent as they were 18 months ago. So... To me, that seems, contrary to all of the Western media, of course, that the Syrian army has better control now than it did 18 months earlier on the major populated areas. When you say problems and attacks, is that from the land or is that from the air where fighting is happening? The fighting happens in certain areas, and once you're in there and you've got contacts and so on, you know where the fighting's happening. But it's been localised. There's there's only a few areas that the al-Qaeda groups, the Islamist groups backed by the NATO and and the Gulf monarchies, There's only a few areas where they've been there for a long time. In other areas, there are attacks from time to time. I mean, they they penetrate and have a presence in a lot of areas of the country, but they don't control that many areas of the country. So in terms of the ordinary person doing their own business there in or around any of the cities, the major problem is that the Islamists are sending in mortars, basically, and occasionally sniping, those sorts of things. So... You need to have up-to-date sort of intelligence on what's going on there, where there's fighting. But generally speaking, it's localised because when there's a group that get identified, then the army surrounds them. You know, there's a type of gradual process of um, picking them off or basically getting them to surrender. Because there are some areas like in northern Aleppo, in, in parts of northeastern, eastern, northeastern, outer Damascus, that are held in that way, again, contrary to the Western media, they haven't been carpet-bombed. A lot of Syrians hope they would carpet bomb those areas, say the ones that have been held for, say, up to three years. 
because they say the only civilians in there are the families of the of the Islamists, um, people who want to be there, basically. But the government has been more cautious on, than that, and they've gone in, you know, street by street. It's hand-to-hand fighting, really. Like it was going on in in the mountains, just to the north of where we were last month in Zabadani, where the Syrian army and Hezbollah are gradually pulling a cordon tight on that city, and there are, there are several hundred of um, Islamist fighters in there. Is it known how many fighters from Hezbollah are there? Not exactly, no, they never say that, but there are many hundreds, probably thousands. But They've been involved in a big operation in the last few months to clean out the Kalamun Mountains, which is along the border with uh, Lebanon there, basically, because the presence of those terrorist groups there is a threat to Lebanon as well as to Syria. They've been in Syria quite a bit, but mainly in that area, and there would have been thousands in the overall operation, but they've almost finished it. Sabadani is the last big town that really ha- it has been held by the, the Western-backed groups. Where are the refugees coming from internally and where are they going to? Once again, the Western media will always talk of the ones that have left the country in the camps in the north of Jordan, the south of Turkey, and and then those in Lebanon. There's quite a lot there. There's, there'd be at least, say, two million in those three countries. But there's about six million internally displaced in Syria and not necessarily permanently displaced, but sometimes like the ones from parts of Aleppo and northern Aleppo, um, you know, displaced in the long term, basically. So a lot of them have gone to the coast. Because Turkey allows in all of the terrorist groups into the north of Syria, most of the foreigners come in that way, then they're being displaced out of some of those rural areas in north Idlib and north provincial Aleppo and so on, and also down a little bit into Hama, across into the coast. So the mayor of of Latakia told us that um, that province had gone from 1.3 million to 3 million, over 3 million. So it's doubled in size with people coming from all parts of the country. It's changed the more or less the composition of that. That also there's been to some extent that, that's flowed down the coast into Tartus, for example. You can see there's a huge construction boom going on because they've had to house very, very large numbers of people there you know, on a, on a semi-permanent basis. Most of them are not in tents. There are some tents, but even a minority of them in the big institutions like the big sports centre in Latakia, there's about 5,000 there, but you're talking about millions that are over there. So they're all through the province in villages and government has provided housing and subsidised housing and schools and these sorts of things. So we visited a Palestinian family on the outskirts of Yarmouk, for example. There was about 35 living in a school. The school was still functioning, but the family was in there. And the same happens with lots of those sorts of institutions. So in the south, because there's been fighting in Daraa in that area next to Jordan and Israel, and Jordan and Israel have both been giving support to them, there's been an offensive by the Islamists, there's been a counter-offensive by the army just recently. Most of them there have fled east into Sweda, which is largely a, or was largely a Druze area. Now it's got half a million people from Dara in Sweda. And then you've got Damascus in Damascus. It's a big city now. It's swollen from what used to be five to six. It will be at least seven million now probably. But there, most of the displacement is sort of from one part to the other. Most of the Palestinian people, for example, in Yamuk, what used to be called Yamuk Camp, it's really a big suburb um, in southern Damascus, have left. More than 90% have left, but they've simply moved to other parts of Damascus, basically, Jaramana and some other parts to the north of, of Yamuk. There's only a relatively small group, maybe 10,000 in Yamuk now, and there's much heavier security there because of the constant infiltration of the al-Qaeda groups into that area. Again, that's not the impression we're being given 
what's happening in Yarmouk, from what I read, that it's been taken over by the Islamists and the, and the people are still living in it and they're starving and all the stories, something like that. So you say that's not true either? The first part's true. The Islamists, what happened was the Hamas-aligned Islamists who have identified really with the Islamist insurrection since 2011, they've been smashed recently by other groups of Islamists. They were inviting a group called Jabhat al-Nusra, the official al-Qaeda, into Yamuk several times. The Syrian army had negotiated some sort of evacuation of those groups there, but they always broke the, the accords there. The most recent one in, in April this year was that although the Hamas group, I've forgotten its name, the military arm there had invited in Jabhat al-Nusra, Jabhat al-Nusra then invited in ISIL, and ISIL came in and smashed the Hamas militant group in, in April this year, the Hamas military group, I mean. The Hamas group went three ways. A third of them were killed, a third of them joined ISIL, and a third of them sought refuge with the army, basically. The army and the, and the army linked, um, or the army, law, the Syrian army loyal Palestinian groups, which are the Palestinian Liberation Army and the, the Popular Front militia. Really, the Hamas military group virtually doesn't exist there anymore, but there is Jabhat al-Nusra and ISIL, basically, confronting those other Palestinian militia that are loyal to the army. The army has never gone into Yamuk. The army has put a cordon around it, a security cordon around it, and then allowed the Palestinian militia to police their own areas, basically. That's still the case. But there would be 10,000 or less people there. There used to be 150,000 in Yamuk. It's like all of those areas that are occupied by armed gangs, basically. Most of the civilians get out, you know. Some of them can tolerate it. Some of them are sympathised with them. Some of them are families of them. But most of them get out. That's been the case in Yamuk in the last year or so, and also, of course, in in the eastern parts of Damascus, like Jobar and Duma, which are virtually ghost towns. And to the extent that there are civilians there these days, after such a long time, they really are family and sympathisers. Did you get anywhere near the Iraq border? No, nowhere near. That's a long way across the desert. We were all on the, on the western side, going from, as I said, from Sueda to Damascus to Homs, and then up the coast there. Didn't go to Aleppo. You can go to Aleppo, but we didn't go to Aleppo on this, on this trip. We were travelling as guests of the Institute of Sport and going to some of the big sporting facilities there. Talk about some of the sporting facilities. You were saying that life is fairly normal for some of the people there? It's normal in inverted commas, in the sense that, and this is the way the Syrians talk about it, they say, I remember 18 months ago there was a headline saying, great victory against terrorism, four million children go to school. And that's not the way we would think of it, but it's true, you know, four million children go to school, and when they go to school, because... The Islamist objective has been to shut down all the schools and universities until the regime falls. This is for the last, you know, four and a half years. Those simple everyday sorts of things are something which the government collaborates with the people in in everyday life going on. I'd, I'd call it everyday life rather than normal life because people have had to get used to mortars raining down on their heads. I said there were less attacks on Damascus when we were there last month, but when we were coming back from the south, we saw some big explosions and there'd been a number of soldiers and a journalist killed uh, in a confrontation there. But generally speaking, that eastern part of Damascus has been gradually, slowly taken over by the government, basically. We saw some areas, and you, when you come in from the airport, you see a lot of areas where there's been fighting and where the buildings have been trashed by sort of medium weapons. A number of those areas have been cleaned and are being reconstructed, but it's a slow process because... They keep, you know, the, the backers of these groups for Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Qatar and Israel, they keep 
sending new waves of the bent into it, so it doesn't really ever get fully resolved. It's certainly not a civil war, as is claimed in, in the Western media. There's no way to stop the mercenaries coming through Turkey? It's very difficult without any proper agreement with the Turkish government, basically. Um, there's 900 kilometres of border there, and the current Turkish government, um, I say current because there's a political crisis in Turkey now, the current Turkish government has been very happy to sponsor these groups coming across because Erdogan sees himself as a type of Muslim Brotherhood leader in the region, and he's basically been sympathetic with all of those groups, from whether it's the, what, what are euphemistically called the moderate rebels to ISIL, pretty much the Syrians regard them all the same. They call them all Daesh, which is the, the Arabic acronym for ISIL. Daesh were mercenaries. They don't really bother with all of the different brand names so much. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR and I'm speaking with Dr Tim Anderson about his recent visit to Syria. Are there Australian journalists in Syria or are we getting um, the information through other sources? There have been some Australian journalists that have gone there, but most of the information you're getting is coming from cable services in Britain and the US and, and France and so on. There's Australian correspondents in Tel Aviv and Turkey, so you get you know the pretty much the Israeli and Turkish version of these things, which is very hostile to Syria and to some extent in Lebanon. Uh, and occasionally they go and visit the camps in Jordan or whatever, but there's not really any consistent journalistic presence. There's the odd freelance like Chris Ray, who's written a couple of articles. He's gone to Syria a couple of times and written a few good articles, which got into the, the good weekend. But by and large, the corporate media has been just fed stories, which, like, for example, there's one I saw this morning from, uh, and it comes from this what's called the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. It's one guy, a Muslim Brotherhood guy in London, seems to have a good working relationship with British intelligence, who says activists say the government just killed 100 civilians bombing this market. And typically what that means is, I mean, it's a, it's it really signifies to me now that the government has attacked Islamists in a particular area. They rang up their mate in London and said, look, all these civilians are being killed. Sometimes they provide a picture, like the picture in the story is all of these young males that look like they're Islamist fighters. Basically, from the beginning of the, of the crisis, those sort of stories have been coming through the preferred sources. It's very bad journalism because, for example, in the case of this story, they rely on one source who's flying a, a, a one of the Islamist flags on his website, and it's no secret that constitutes journalism these days, apparently. What's known about the role of the US and NATO in Syria? The US and NATO and the Gulf monarchies, remember Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the others, most of the others, they back every single Islamist group in Syria. There isn't a single Islamist group that isn't backed by Washington and its allies. That's been the reality. It's been openly known for at least a couple of years now. They were cautious at first about it, but you will see from admissions by the head of the U.S. military, uh, Martin Dempsey, and the, the U.S. Vice President, Joe Biden, and a number of others, uh, one of the senators on the, um, on the Armed Forces Committee, that their allies, their close allies, have funded every group from whatever the they want to call a moderate rebels, they never give a name to them, to ISIL and Jabhat al-Nusra al-Qaeda. They're all backed by the Western and Gulf Council countries, all of them. The US, for various reasons of the history of this conflict, has gone cold on, hasn't got the stomach for more, an escalated military presence in Syria, largely because of that confrontation they had with Russia back in September 2013. Since then, uh, you know, they've moved from this idea of humanitarian intervention mainly into the supposed war on ISIL, which all of the Iraqi and, and Syrian 
officials uh, say is a fake war. Basically, it's just trying to keep their foot in the in the territory and uh, give a new pretext for it. Basically, can you talk about some of the people, Tim, that you met, and the and a bit more about the places you visited? There was two of us, really, two groups in our small group this time. We we had fifteen at one stage. We went down to seven through different delays and so on with the with the trip. But there was um, a couple of boxers who were, including Father Dave Smith, the, the fighting priest, who were doing some exhibition work more or less, and and TR really with the um, with the Institute of Sport. And there was a, a handful of us from Hands Off Syria group. You know, it was a solidarity group, but the boxing thing was a type of therapy that Father Dave has in mind for traumatised young men or boys who were traumatised by the war, basically. And the good thing about that was we got to go to a lot of sports facilities. Well, I mean, we were only half a dozen people, but we met an awful lot of people through those sporting facilities and saw, for example, how, in terms of everyday life, the government goes on supporting those sort of uh, activities. Um, for example, we went to one, two, three, four big sporting facilities, for example, focused on boxing, and there were you know a few hundred people that came along and were participated, including... Young women, you know, young women are doing boxing in Syria too, probably the only Middle Eastern country where young women are really out there in athletics of any sort, let alone boxing and so on. We went to the big Tishreen Aquatic Centre in Damascus and that was just while we were waiting for something else. We walked in and the scale of it was was, uh, impressive because we've got very good facilities here but they don't seem to be used in the same sort of way. For example, in this aquatic centre, there was 2,000 children learning to swim, and it was um, a three-month course, four days a week, learning to swim, with a whole lot of trainers there. So really a mass participation sort of process. Similar to what I've seen in Cuba, by the way, it's interesting that, that sport can be a real mass thing, as well as you know the, the elite, elite competitive edge of things. I think here... With our Institute of Sport, we've got very good facilities in this country, but it's typically focused on those people who are going to be competitors at the at the top level, more or less, and it's not so much for large-scale mass sport. People have been, I could think, in this culture, we really encourage people to go to private gyms and facilities if they want to exercise or, you know, pay their way into the local pool or something, but not really organised at a public level. So we met a lot of people through there, and including going to, going to the outskirts of Yarmouk with uh, the sports guys and... Um, seeing that some of those little satellite camps where displaced people have moved into and Father Dave and uh, the boxer he was with took them sporting equipment like boxing and soccer balls and stuff like that. We had a number of friends in Damascus we went to visit and we also um, you know, had contacts, official contacts and contacts with some religious leaders and so on. So we met a lot more people. I mean, it's always the case when you, when you start to build your own networks, you meet a lot of people and see people on the street and, and meet friends and friends and so on. We went to a new, a big new complex. Here's something that gives you an idea of everyday life, I suppose. A big new complex called uh, Uptown in New Sham. And New Sham is a, a big sort of satellite city of Damascus on the other side of um, Cassian Mountain. And it's quite a secure area in many ways, but they built a big this big complex there called Uptown, which we would probably call a... A commercial complex but there because the focus was a little bit different it was different in the center of were children's rides and children's activities then you had sporting activities for adults a lot of restaurants and cafes and then some commercial development shops and so on but the shops were sort of more or less on the edges of it and the children's activities were in the middle now this opened last year 2014 and it was a big controversy at the time because there was one argument you know, amongst the Syrians that said that 
well, how come all this money is being spent on this big new facility when people are really suffering because of the war? And the other side of the argument goes, yeah, but you know, families, family life goes on and people have got children and so on. And indeed, there's, I think it looks like there's a lot of children. It looks like the birth rate's gone up in Syria, some sort of response to threats or something. But there are a lot of children in Syria. And so when we went there in aid at the end of Ramadan, in the evening, because it's really hot in summer in, in Damascus, you know, you get to 40 degrees, 45 degrees. And so people stay at home and they come out in the evening, or quite late in the evening, sometimes, you know, midnight and after midnight. In aid, it was like that. And there were thousands of people in this complex taking their kids to the rides and so on and the sports facilities. And, and they were relatively affordable, economical, because there's, there's a lot of economic pressure in Syria. There's a lot of poverty and shortages now. People have got food. And they've got their basics in many ways, but there's there's a lot of things they're missing. So a lot of people were taking advantage of this facility, and, and that just goes to show you that in, in some ways, I wouldn't really call it normal, but everyday life certainly does go on, and the state is functioning with those sort of facilities, with education, with the hospital system. We went to visit hospitals as well, saw wounded soldiers from the latest fight against Albadani sports facilities and all those other sorts of facilities. Everyday life does go on. How are they getting on for power sources? The power is under threat because a lot of the power infrastructure and um, plants are exposed and so there are blackout, regular blackouts throughout Syria everywhere pretty much. Sometimes they're quite regular, like you know, you know, for example, in Sueda when we were there that the power would go out at 9pm but it would come back on at 11 at night. And that's a process of rationing really because they've got a national grid. And actually the infrastructure, I was a little bit surprised because I got to travel by ground around the country a lot more this time than last time. The roads and the infrastructure are surprisingly good really for a country which is relatively poor in economic terms but the power is being attacked because there is this national grid of lines and and so on that gets attacked periodically by the islamists so they ration it out in some areas the blackouts are longer than others you know in aleppo there have been longer blackouts so sometimes they'd only get electricity a few hours a day and, and that's difficult in summer when there's this incredible heat i mean in damascus for example in the big apartment blocks even pretty poor apartments everyone's got air conditioning because they're just it's an essential thing. It may be a luxury in, in Sydney or Melbourne, but it's essential in, in a country that has that sort of heat. Is there any evidence of support from Russia? Oh, it, it's very well known that Russia's a, a close ally of Syria, being an important ally. Russia and Iran are the two most important allies, and Russia has been a supplier of significant amounts of aid as well as military equipment, the major supplier of military equipment, and Iran, after that, Iran is extremely important too. Those, those two are both critical to you know to Syria's resistance backing Syria but they haven't directly been involved in in fighting except by training Iran has been involved in a lot of training there may be some Iranians who are involved in training and other sorts of logistics similarly with Russians but they haven't been you know the army the Iranian army and the Russian army haven't been directly involved you mentioned a moment ago girls playing sport women in particular in the country are they visible yeah, they're very visible. They they have a, a very different history to most of the rest of the Middle East. I mean, the status of women in Syria is better than all of the other Arab countries, basically. Um, maybe you could make an exception for Lebanon. For example, women are, you know, they're flying planes. They're doing a whole range of things, basically. In Damascus, you'd see probably majority of women wear a hijab. You don't really see any burqas at all, but the majority would wear a hijab. But that's probably increased a bit since the crisis. A lot of families would just want to take a low profile, not make themselves targets, more or less, you know, because Islamists do attack women who 
they consider to be you know against their particular beliefs whereas in other parts of the country in Sweden and, and up on the coast most women don't wear hijabs there and their participation in, in everyday life particularly in education I mean all women in hijab too of course they're doing incredible things we met this amazing young woman young Sunni woman wearing a hijab in Damascus in our hotel because we were in a hotel with sports people we were hosted by the Institute of Sport they had a dedicated hotel for all of the sports teams that were coming and going and doing things and the Special Olympics was on in Los Angeles at the end of last month. And Syria had this um, problem with getting visas. The athletes had problems getting visas for the U.S. because, you know, the U.S. looks at Syria and does what they want to do, more or less. So they rejected them all in the first application for visas. And that team came back. They didn't really know what the reasons were, so they just tried a few less people and applied again, some of them got in. Now, one of their coaches, a young woman called Dana, Dana Schubert, maybe she's 23 or something like that. She's a medical student. She's an English translator. She's a champion athlete, and she's a coach, and she's um, on the national coaching board. She went as one of the trainers with the, the special athletes. The special athletes are intellectually disabled athletes. So this has been going on for some time with Summer and Winter Olympics for the Special Olympics. They eventually got to the U.S., when the, the word of the problems they had with visas got through, the head of the U.S., the host uh, team, Tim Shriver, the head of the U.S. Um, Special Olympics, came down personally and marched with the, with the Syrian flag in the opening ceremony in, in Los Angeles. So that was quite a big thing. And this, this young woman, Donna, she was just playing a leading role because she was very articulate and she had such a strong link to all of the, all of the elements of the, of the Special Olympics. So I just I just give that story to mention that uh, young women, even if they're covered up, you know, in an Islamic way, they still have a often a very active role in in sports and in other parts of daily life. Your group came a long way from Australia. Were there other internationals, peoples there, supporting Syria? Well, depending on which part of Damascus you're in, which circles you move in. I mean, the first time we were there, we were in a four-star hotel which a lot of foreign delegations were coming through this time we we're in a three-star and mainly it was young Syrian people that were coming through there basically that was really good to see but we have seen from time to time and particularly in the four-star a lot of Europeans coming in there's some European groups that have had a lot of aid foreign aid coming in to the government and to government linked groups and government linked NGOs uh, there's been a change uh, in the last year or so with the relationships between foreign governments and the UN agencies and the Syrian government basically because of the polarization because it's become more apparent we were saying this a long time ago but it's become more apparent that all of the the conflict is going on between extremist groups and the government and there aren't really you know secular or more moderate rebels in the country that more cautiously the European governments but they're making links more with directly with the Syrian government because of their concerns about terrorism coming back to their countries but also European aid agencies are now dealing directly with the government and directly with government-backed NGOs. So, for example, the Syrian Trust for Development, which is doing a lot of projects, is now getting approached also by UN agencies. So UN agencies, which two years ago were reluctant to fund Syrian government agencies, they didn't know what the status of the Syrian government was in international terms. They are now having direct relations and funding projects because only the government is really doing all of the major, the Syrian government is doing all the major welfare services for the population and even the families of Islamist fighters, for example, in Suede, there's a bit of complaint about some of the people that come up from, uh, say, the wives of some of the fighters that come up from Dara and stay there and they overhear them on their phones saying, oh, we've got everything we need here, but 
there are all these kuffar around, there are all these infidels around us, you know, they're complaining in a, in a sectarian way about the fact that Suede is mainly, mainly Druze people there. So the sanctions from the European side are not as comprehensive as the US sanctions either. That makes European relationship with Syria a bit better. One interesting thing at a government level is that the Egyptian government and the United Arab Emirates, that's an Islamist monarchy too, but basically they've softened their line because they've got their own struggles against the Muslim Brotherhood in those countries. They've re-established relationships with Syria and now with the deal with Iran, the big power deal with Iran, the diplomatic scene has changed quite a lot. So there's quite a quite a shift in um, in international relations and a um, bit of a flood of, of new re-establishing links, uh, official links with um, Syria. And that makes a difference to all of the agencies and the NGOs too. So you're a lot more positive coming back this time than you were the uh, first time? Uh, even though people are still being killed every day and, you know, we saw them, you know, victims of mortars and snipers and fire and so on. Yes, that last trip last month convinced me that the tide is turning substantially. And the Iran deal gives you a, a sense of it. Iran will have an influence on regional affairs much stronger than it was before. And now that, uh, for example, its economy has strengthened, its legitimacy has strengthened, the Asians, particularly the Chinese, are now reinvesting in Iran, the Chinese and the Russians are providing weapon systems to Iran. Iran is Syria's major ally in the region and its hands been strengthened and Israel really is upset with the idea. The Saudi Arabians are upset with the idea but uh, Syria is winning slowly despite the terrible cost in, in daily conflict that's going on there. Thanks Tim. Thanks Jan. And that was Dr Tim Anderson from the group Hands Off Syria. It's also a senior lecturer in political economy at the University of Sydney. That's all I have. 28 minutes past five. Jonathan will be here very soon.